All right. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at KKUP.org where we stream live all the time. It's Wednesday night. This is Out of Our Minds Poetry Radio, the longest running poetry radio show in the United States. I'm your host, Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita. I'm going to change the tone a little bit and play some music. Uh, this is Procura by Chichi Peralta. So here we go. Thank you. 
just chatting this whole time so tonight um i've got tim j myers uh shall i read your bio please okay so yeah absolutely uh so here we go tim j myers is a writer songwriter storyteller visual artist and senior lecturer at santa clara university his children's books have won recognition from new york times npr and the smithsonian with 15 out and more coming (laughs) exciting um he's published over 140 poems so many poems won a first prize in a poetry contest judged by john updike his five books of adult poetry uh, has five books of adult poetry out, published a nonfiction book on fatherhood, and won a major prize in science fiction. You've got just tons and tons of accolades around you. Thank you very much for saying that. <laughs> That's sweet of you. And I'm going to read, so tonight we're going to be talking about the book, um, All the Fierce Complexities of Hunger. And uh, Dean Rader uh, says, In All the Fierce Complexities of Hunger, Tim J. Myers shows a poetic range that is astonishing. It seems impossible, but his book is a master collection of poems both traditional and experimental both lyric and narrative funny and serious both comforting and disturbing both long and short both contemporary and historical Uh, is there anything he can't do it would appear not as I was wowed from the first poem with its linguistic nod to Jared Manley Hopkins to the last with its gorgeous echoes of W.S. Merwin this is one of those rare books that will in some way speak to every reader and that's Dean Rader so that's a huge oh my goodness <laughs> you know I don't pay for those but if I was going to order one that's the one and, and to tell you the truth I'm I'm first of all I think the world of, of that guy and his work mm-hmm. uh, of him as a person I mean I don't know know him but I we know each other mm-hmm. and um, the way so for me to be kind of the eclectic eclectic generalist type I am mm-hmm. and for him to talk about that that was unbelievably gratifying because I think there are uh there's sometimes some issues about being the the kind of writer or the kind of artist who's all over the map yes and I can't help being that and I know you are too <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean then there are some issues in terms of how you live your life practically right, right. and how good can you get if you're not doing just one thing right but also issues about your art and if it holds together right so for him to say that the book holds together when mm-hmm. it has a, a lot of variety of elements. Wow, that that's something I, I really treasure that, and especially coming from him. Yeah, and I was I was telling you before that I wanted to say on the air, Dean Rader is probably one of the. I really would would say that he's the reason I'm here at this radio show because he published or he had a call out for 99 poems for the 99 percent right as soon as I got out of grad school, University of Pittsburgh, and I submitted the poem and he published it and they put together an anthology and JP dancing bear was there at, uh, Oh, it was the bookstore in Menlo park. What is that? Oh, one? uh, 
Oh, I, I forgot his name. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, because we love you. We love you. We're just blanking. <laughs> totally blanking. Yeah. Um, and JP Dancing Bear was there, and I had known that JP Dancing Bear had been doing a radio show. I knew who he was and had heard of him, um, but I read... And then my first book was coming out and I went to JP and I was like, hey, I, I have a first book coming out. Maybe I could be on the radio show. And he said, absolutely. And he invited me. He said, you could just call in since you're coming from Hollister. I said, no way. I'm going to drive all the way to San Jose to <laughs> be on this radio show. So I came out here and afterwards he was like, he, he sent out a big email to a bunch of really important poets in the area and me. And he said, I need someone to take over the radio show who wants to do it. And everyone was silent. And I said, I do. And he's like, that's what I was hoping. That's like the old thing in the cartoons where they'd be the French Foreign Legion. And they'd say, who's going to volunteer? The guys would all be in line. Who's going to volunteer for this deadly mission? And everybody but one guy would take a step back. So it looked like he stepped forward. No, you know, actually, there are two things about that, about that whole incident that really strike me one is that i'm not surprised this is the third time you and i have talked together mm. in the show i am not surprised at all that jp would see this in you in one in one city right yeah and he was like rochelle you could do this yes <laughs> absolutely because it, it's not just about your the quality of your work but it's also about your personableness and your energy and all that <laughs> stuff and and th that's cool the reason i like what you just talked about is this is also a quality that Dean has. So it's one of the things I love about so many artists. Mm. Their fruitfulness is not restricted just to their work. Right. So one of the things I love about Dean is I was, when I got in touch with him, I was looking at his website, I think it was. It could have been something else. Uh, but anyway, he had a picture of himself. And unlike almost all of those pictures, he had his young son with him Aww. in the picture. So, And I talked to him more later about fatherhood. So I have a book about fatherhood. It's a big thing for me. So here's this fruitfulness in professional life, mm. fruitfulness, and this is the same for you. We were just talking about your amazing <laughs> three-year-old daughter. Uh, fruitfulness in your personal and your family life, fruitfulness in your community and service life. Mm. I mean, I, I just love this. So, and again, not all artists are like this, and they don't all have to be. I don't know. Right, that. of course. But some artists are just like cornucopias. Mm. Just all this stuff flows out of them. And, yeah. yeah, and I, that's why I'm always happy to have you on the show as well. <laughs> well I mean, we the work. <laughs> I mean, the amount of work that you're producing is just, it's really amazing. And I'm always, um, I'm, I'm always astonished with the work that poets are able to do in the world. And we were just talking about how we don't make any money in poetry and <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, it doesn't always get, so we have other things that we're working on, but, but really poetry seems to be the thing that you keep coming back to no matter what, right? Well, I, I have a rule and I have a feeling you have the same rule <laughs> and it's not a practical rule. Uh, but it's the kind of rule that can shape a life. I never say no to the muse. <laughs> so w when I think about my relationship between my wife and myself is still, we've been married a long time. I think we're going on 46 years. Wow. Uh, we're, it's still a very passionate relationship. But we also, we treat each other with a certain amount of order. Like mm. I know when... She, and she's going to help me when I need help. And, mm. and our lives mm. proceed in a very fruitful, orderly way most mm -hmm. of the time. The muse... It's, it, not. it's like I'm having an affair with this crazy yeah, it's not. 56 year old divorcee who comes at two in the morning and <laughs> bangs at my door and says, let's party. And I'm like, I have to get up in the morning. I have to teach. I'm working on, I'm working on this project. Why do you suddenly want me to write a poem? Yes. And I just, I just, I get out of bed and I, I go with her. 
I go with her, right? I yes. Can't, I can't say no. Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I, I was just saying earlier that I haven't produced much poetry, even though I'm doing, I'm doing a million other things. Um, but I will say that, uh, you know, I, I, I really, a lot of my poetry comes from a place of love, amorous love, uh, mm-hmm. relationship love, sexual love, that kind of stuff. And uh, so when that happens... I it, it it does it happens at two in the morning exactly at three in the morning and I'm like I have to work all day tomorrow and you want me to write this poem right now and not only do you want me to write this poem but I've got to drive to the coast and go sit on the beach at two in the morning by myself in order to get this feeling out of me so is that amazing too is that that comparison <laughs> to erotic behavior is it's such a good metaphor for this because you just you don't know when the god's gonna come down and possess you right and by the way this is interesting too because you and i were just talking about this as you mentioned a moment ago and i laughed when 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 you said yeah i'm not getting as much poetry written as i wanted i started laughing because you had just told me the unbelievable amount of stuff that you're doing so here's my question for yourself what was when's the last time you wrote a poem I don't know, like four days ago. Okay. <laughs> case closed. I rest my case. It's like, oh, I'm not producing enough poetry. With your life, if you wrote a poem four days ago, yeah, you got the bug. You got the bug, sister. It's never going to leave, leave you alone. me no, It's not going to leave you alone. So speaking of sort of um, hunger or love, amorousness, mm-hmm. I mean, this book is about the fierce complexities of hunger. Tell me about uh, what this book is doing and, and why Dean Rader loves it so much. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, I actually brought something tonight that's a line I love. I'm an oral storyteller, so I do a lot of that. And I have a big uh, big repertoire of stories from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived in Norway for a couple of years. My wife and I taught there. So I started learning about the Osbjörns and M.O. Uh, fairy tales, which are really famous. Okay. Probably the most famous collection of. And there's uh, one called the Charcoal Burner. And there's, there's this line in it. Uh, a bunch of people are going by this house. And a man and his wife are there. A husband and a wife are there. And he's saying, well, I should go. They're on the way to the palace. He said, I should go. Maybe mm-hmm. I can make some money or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the charcoal burner, this is a poor man, right? Right. Thought he would go as well and put on the old parson's clothes. That's a side plot there. Right? Mm-hmm. His wife thought it would be wiser of him to stay at home for even if he got the chance to hold a horse for some grand person, she was afraid the sixpence he got for it would vanish down his throat, <laughs> which was usually the case. Now, here's the line that stuck with me, and it's a throwaway line. It's a throwaway line, but it is philosophically and spiritually profound. Yes, everybody talks about the drink, but no one about the thirst, do mm. they, mother, said the husband. Now, you know, mm. when you think of that, it's the way desire mm. captivates, is a foundation for shapes uh, human experience for good and ill you know mm-hmm. and again a lot of my book is about terrible things that mm. are the results of our desire mm. but also in some of the best things like love for mm. example in fact I, I think and again there's there a fair amount of erotic things in this book too um, it's one of those places where the two come together when you're in love sexual romantic love you are feeling an animal desire which is mm. very powerful mm. but it's to me, it's absolutely spiritualized because you also love that person more than any. The love always trumps the lust. Mm, right? mm. So um, there are so many things about our lives that are shaped by desire. In fact, I mean, in some ways, you could almost define us as 
as you creatures know, of desire as creatures of desire and the hunger itself and yeah you're in in the case of that quote and in the case of this situation we're not talking about the actuality of the thing we're talking about the 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 relationship to the self that exists that the hunger and the thirst is 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 actually just inside the single person that is see, that's a profound point i'm i know i'm on radio but i'm over here nodding <laughs> hugely because and I, that's one of the things i think about this line i think that jumped at me is we have this tendency, and again, I don't know how you were raised, but the way I was raised, and I'm a lot older than you, so this was more old school, but desire was treated as something usually negative. Mm. You were supposed to obey and conform, and of mm-hmm. course there's a strong tradition in the in the Catholic Church, and I was, yes. in, mm-hmm. which was that desire and sexual desire were bad things in themselves, mm-hmm. and it was always selfishness or whatever. But, I mean, if you're a religious person, I think one of the arguments you would have to accept, not all of them mm-hmm, do, mm-hmm. is uh, who put this desire in you to begin with? Yeah. Your creator, if, you, if yeah. you're religious. And I yeah. happen to believe that, right? Right. And I think this desire, I, I love William Blake's line that the lust of the goat is the glory <laughs> of God. You know, so, there, so there's, you have, and it's, and it's exactly what you said, Rochelle. That's, I just, you really got me when you said that because this is not a thing that's in us that we have to, you know, um, either indulge or mm-hmm. constrain. It's essential part of who we are. Yes. And we have to grow into that better self in order to deal with this the way it should be properly dealt Yes. With. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think about like uh, dating culture and the world <sighs> today, uh, what's going on, uh, all <laughs> which I loosely am involved in in lots of different ways and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But... But I think about how um, a lot of the issues around relationships now, there's this discussion about um, taking care of yourself first and taking and, and loving yourself first and, and really bringing order to what you want and what you need and what your desires are before you have this, uh, this before you even go looking for anyone else. And because that in itself is an act of, of sort of, being ready for love or being ready for right. the next thing. But the hunger and the thirst, those things are there and those that stuff is inside of you essentially. Right. And so you must deal with that hunger essentially on your own individually. Even if you love someone, even if that hunger has a, a place outside of the body, right. it is just yours. Right. That's right. That's crazy. And you know, and I'm hearing that thing too in a lot of situations mm. and with some young people I know who, you know, I'm hearing yeah. through them. And of course, some people are attacking that idea yeah. and they're saying, well, this is selfish. And I'm like, no. The self-love movement. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Self-love. Yeah. I think if you really understand this, what you understand is that self-love doesn't let you off the hook. No. Self-love puts you on the hook. Right. If you love yourself, you have to respect yourself. You have to do what's right for yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to push yourself to work hard, mm-hmm. to be responsible, to be honest, all those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, we obviously we see relationships go bad all the time mm-hmm. because people have not, and I, I don't mean to use the word organize in the in the usual sense, but mm-hmm. they haven't spiritually or psychologically organized themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, p- obviously, people can fall in love with each other at a young age when they're still forming, and of that relationship course. can go on and blossom. But plenty of those relationships are destroyed, and they, they yeah, they fall apart. They yeah. fall apart. Yeah. So, if you're somebody who was young and it worked out for you, that's great. But mm-hmm. that's the generally speaking in my experience that's the exception yeah i think so i think so that's very interesting so so will you read us some poems from this delighted to (laughs) it's funny that that's great because the one i'd planned to read first tonight fits 
um, unbelievably well with what we're just talking we about. We always have really good conversations. Got some synchronicity going <laughs> I know. <in> too. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is called Love by the Sea, and it's about a relationship, um, a, a sexual romantic relationship, and all that that entails. So that's another thing about that. It's like I got that message growing up so strongly, even though it wasn't spoken that often, mm. that lust was a bad thing, essentially a bad thing. And I'm like, as an adult, I look back and think, well, lust actually drove me to some of the greatest challenges for me to be responsible and giving and unselfish. <laughs> and, you know, because yeah. marriage is not, no. you know, marriage is work and it has to oh, be. Yeah. Uh, but also this poem is about the way that kind of, there are two different views of spirituality in this too. Love by the Sea. Give your heart to the all-mother, they said, who intercedes with the father. She is bliss itself, all forgiving, sky-locked, turns no one away. But I'm human, therefore a mole. Mm. Recall worship more earthbound. My heart's love chant as we fit our bodies together in that old clapboard rental behind the dunes. Mm. And you, less than all receiving woman, whose bond to me was shaped of anger and despair as often as of love. Mm. Look up, they said. See mother always smiling. Poor banished, I watched and said, instead, sun endlessly pursuing its twilight sex act with the sea. You craved light. I drowned myself in you. Mm. Here at the edge, I regret nothing. Mm. All mother loving still but a mole, a sand digging crab. A little sandpiper grubbing in the surf wash. Here where waves rush up, where rain breaks down and dark curves over the restless waters, moments tumble down endlessly, mist manna. Mm. Hey, I got to ask you something. Mm. Growing up Catholic, <laughs> you caught, did you catch the poor banished reference? Do you know that? No, one? I don't. See, I think this is old time Catholic. But <laughs> it's the, uh, the song where you say at the end of the rosary. And we said the rosary all the time, and it's poor banished children of Eve. And I, I remember even as a kid, I thought that was a beautiful, sad, poetic poor banished line. Poor Eve. banished children of Eve. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I um, we I was I was actually I was a uh, uh, baptized in the Catholic Church, and then my parents turned to Christianity later. You told me that. Yeah. That's right. And then and 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 at that point, I just decided I was just going to read books the whole time. So. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, by the way, is Turned as great good. a path but to religion to, and spirituality exactly, as any other. Exactly. And I have to say, though, I have to say I, I'm really grateful uh, for my education in the Bible because it really gave me a, a ability to understand uh, the canon of American literature very right. clearly. Absolutely. I, I remember going to grad school and people were like, what do you mean Lot's wife? And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean Lot's wife? <laughs> Pillar of salts. Hello, Pillar <laughs> the of best salt? image ever. <laughs> like, in my, so my wife. I always give my wife crap about this, right? So I went to Catholic schools the whole time. So we were drenched in it, right? We, yeah, we got yeah. it all the time. And she went to public schools. So and her family's Catholic too, but she was what we call a CCD Catholic, <laughs> which was the Conference on Christian Doctrine, which meant on Thursday afternoons after school, the public school kids would come and get their catechism. Oh. Right? So she doesn't know Pillar of Salt. <laughs> and I'd be like, you don't know? How do you not Lots know? Wife, Pillar of Salt? Pillar of Salt. You, you, don't, <laughs> you don't know Veronica's napkin? You know yeah, what I mean? exactly. And it's such an incredible, it's one of the things I find just fascinating about this too is, I'm very uh, spiritual, but not in a conventional way. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and there are plenty of things about Catholicism that I would change right now if uh-huh. I could. And probably a lot of them are liberally predictable. You know? <laughs> um, but also, I grew up in this very intense, mythic, almost... Um, yes. It's a mythic community. It was really a myth community. And I don't mean that in a, obviously not to use myth as a negative word. Mm-hmm. Growing up Catholic when I did especially, and I'm not saying it's completely different now, but it was so intense back then. I think it must be something like what it was like to grow up in Athens mm. in the 5th century BCE where you're surrounded by this incredible web of stories. Yes. Gods, goddesses, humans, and all the linkage in them. And yes. this is this, it's a meta narrative, right? You grew up in right. this meta narrative and I grew up in a mythic meta narrative too. Yes. And again, not to say anything about the reality of it. Right. Um, exactly. No, I, I agree with that. I, I, you know, uh, miracles and spirituality, um, uh, you know, growing up, we were very poor and there were times where we didn't have any food and, 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 you know, People would say, well, God would provide and then someone would show up with a couple bags of groceries and that was always like the miracle of God, right? These were always things. When I got older, I did scrutinize that very heavily. Right, like right. this, th- it was not okay for us to be systematically poor and be surrounded by people in church. That was a problem for me and still is. But at that time, it was as if there were miracles happening constantly. And it was as if those things were happening. And then you compound that with the the Mexican Chicano sort of culture where we also have um, a spirituality and an ancestral worship kind of uh, relationship with things and the ghost stories and the cousins who passed away and the sisters and aunts who passed away who still roam around the house, you know, in these ways. So yeah, I also grew up in this mythical universe. Well, and yours had a whole different dimension that I envy <laughs> very much you know and it's funny because you said you scrutinized this heavily and the yeah. same thing happened to me and in fact I went through my big faith crisis when I was 25 um, that kind of scrutiny comes from the use of reason which mm. according to the most conservative teachings of the church is a gift from God that you are supposed to use <laughs> and St. Thomas Aquinas who was oh, the yeah, great that's right. you know created the great resolution and synthesis of the middle ages used mm. reason right. you know, with faith so this that's not a bad thing mm. but the catholic church well to me it's not just catholicism in fact i think this is a huge trend Mm-hmm. across Western culture and probably in a lot of other cultures too, to whatever degree is rationalism started becoming its own thing. Yes. And, and I'm a, I'm very much a rationalist. I'm very for it, mm-hmm. but it got out of control and it became mm-hmm. exclusive rationalism. And that's one of the things that the indigenous traditions have a whole different, and there are a lot of similarities between multiple indigenous exactly. traditions, but also a lot of uniqueness. Exactly. So like when I think of Day of the Dead as this combination, mm-hmm. it's such a rich syncretism. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish, you know, what the Catholics would do in the old days, and of course the Christians were attacked and slaughtered mm-hmm. and they became defensive, but they'd build a cathedral on a pagan spring. Yeah. And, and my, my thing is what I feel like, and I don't know because mm-hmm. I'm not Mexican, I'm not Mexican-American, but... You built your churches on the springs, but you didn't forget the springs were there. Yeah. You know? And that, to me, leads to a great we tried. fullness in spirituality. Yeah, we definitely tried. Not, I mean, my family, because they went into evangelical Christianity that was, like I said, systematically poor and also part of this large... Uh, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, mm-hmm. but like an uneducated mm-hmm. sect of 
Christianity that happened in, in from the Jesus freak movement from right. San, Santa Cruz. And then it went down into like the oh, prisons and then, okay. and then people came out as, as ministers and so on and so forth. So it was a systematic um, level of sort of oppressive Christianity that was right. meant to keep us out of the streets, but in many ways was very cult like at any rate, when we went into that, my mom and our family worked really hard to reject any of that ancestral stuff. So the Christianity really worked hard to like to assimilate us away from those ancestral things. But for me personally, because I remembered my grandmother who my former, who my daughter was named after, I couldn't forget the things that she taught me. Michelle, that is beautiful. (laughs) You know, I I couldn't forget it. I couldn't forget that. Well, the other thing that I think is so beautifully ironic about that is you know, I'm growing up in the 60s and everything was about you're young and you don't want to live past 30 and all the mm. old people are the establishment. So it's supposedly it's old as conservative, young as liberal or leftist, right? Mm-hmm. A true traditionalism goes deeper than that. So here you are, uh, you're saying I have a connection to this older mm. female ancestor of mine. I don't want to call her an ancestor, mm. but relative But yeah, she was an ancestor. And because, and of course, this had to do with your poetic and artistic sensibility mm-hmm. that you had to, by the way, did she tell you stories? She told me stories. Oh, oh there The it whole family. In there fact, in fact, we just had a family, our whole family tells stories all the time at family parties. <laughs> and we were just had a big family birthday party last weekend and they have karaoke machine, right? And, but instead of karaoke, everyone's going around telling stories about everyone else and everyone knows <laughs> who to tell stories about and who not to tell stories about because we know who will get upset and who will not and how many people have had drinks. Yes. (laughs) So storytelling is part of it. And you do storytelling. I my eye teeth to this. And again, I I became a storyteller, Mm -hmm. but I had to break the mold. And and Mm. my family's really... Big, energetic, I'm the oldest of 11, you know, and it's, the, people tell stories, but but it's more in that kind of mainstream way, and it doesn't happen that often. Mm. Um, you know, I became that because I had that same sense of what this offered. Mm-hmm. Even when I became a storyteller, oral storyteller early on when I didn't fully understand the, the spiritual and philosophical mm. ramifications of it, mm-hmm. but I know I sensed them. And this, I think, is what's so beautiful about you and your grandmother is that even as a kid, you sensed that there was something here that was mm-hmm. valuable and bigger and mm-hmm. deeper. And of course, what nothing brings it <laughs> forward better than art. And, yeah. in, and in the general flow of culture, oral storytelling is the most powerful way to do yeah. it. It's not and, the only way, but it's the most powerful. Well, when you were talking earlier about being spiritual and, and it being sort of related to this Catholicism, for me, I kept thinking, well, that feels uh, what the spiritual for me feels like is ancestral. And I don't know if I believe in like and like some of the ways mm. in which sort of new age ancestralism right, right. and all that stuff is. But like this idea that I was the one kid out of all of the countless cousins and family members who absorbed all the stories and then retold the stories. I was also guarded by all of my cousins. You know, they were all drinking and smoking weed and stuff and and someone would pass a joint towards me and, and one of my cousins would say, don't give it to her, she's a smart one. Don't give it to her, let her... You know, people were watching out for me and making sure that I like... So it's almost as if it was my it was my job. Well, and I don't want to overinterpret. This, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy when you look at that, <laughs> and you look at cultural t- traditions, especially around storytelling, and they're mm-hmm. not all the same. No, and I don't of know course, everything of about course. Them, but there is 
one of the most central ways this happens An is orator. there is a line. Mm. The oral, that's right, this person is the teller. Mm -hmm. And this person finds a young person who resonates with that, like like shamanism. You mm -hmm. know, this is, and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not a young person who just, I think she'd be good. There's got to mm -hmm. be some something that comes up out of that young person. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, again, the fact that your cousins would look out for you, it was like, <laughs> she has a role that she's playing here. And when you think of that, that's not so different from somebody who, say, 30,000 years ago yeah. or 20,000 years ago was a bard. Mm -hmm. So this is a person who did the history, mm -hmm. a lot of the medicine, mm -hmm. the stories, mm -hmm. the spirituality, the rituals, mm -hmm. when all that stuff was just like one big hole within a, within mm -hmm. a, a culture. Group, yeah, right? yeah. So I, I just, I think that's just fascinating. Yeah, it is yeah. really fascinating. It's interesting. It's always so fun talking to you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You'd need to read more poetry. Okay, no, I'm happy to do that. I, what I think is hilarious is every time we talk, we spend at least a fifth of our time talking to each other about how much spiritualities and yeah and how much we like talking to each other i know That's exactly other. it's really great so uh, another thing um clearly and I, we mentioned this a little moment ago but um the human desire is a huge a part of it is about the animal mm -hmm. right? the human as an animal mm -hmm. and of course that's also our our connection or our lack of connection to actual animals in the world and it, obviously too we're in a time now we're in such a crisis about yes. that and where the we have undervalued them and i don't go as far as some people go in some of the ideas about this but to me that that is and again this is, tends to be an indigenous thing part of the Again, if you overinterpret the Christian tradition, Genesis says you are the master of the beasts, and mm -hmm. and people take that mm -hmm. way too far. Mm -hmm. I, for me, I've always felt more like relatives, mm -hmm. you know, not mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. this this poem is called Pigeons. Okay. Pigeons. Along the piled steel rails in the old train yard, where August sun heat pounds the summer grasses, over cinders, gravel, shards of shattered brick, they dance, male to female. In this forgotten place, beyond the abandoned shed with punched-out windows, lustful males strut past peeling walls and rotting lumber, fan their proud tail feathers, sweep the dancing ground, puff themselves, rock and bob, step grandly to impress the hens. There is a great creeping and cooing, the heavy mottled feathered bodies fired with ecstasy, aching intent. They ignore the roar of the city, the ground thunder of passing trains, doing work as important as any human labor. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Those pigeons. <laughs> yeah, it's like flying rats, right? <laughs> the lust no. of the goat. The, <laughs> the lust of the goat. Oh, man, yeah, for sure. I hear it. I hear it. I mean, it's, it's <sighs> lust and love and hunger and desire. All these things are so complicated. And I know that we've been, we've been, as poets, it's almost cliche to talk about that. Right, right. Yeah. It's almost cliche. But so how do you come to it without, how do you come to this complexities of hunger without feeling the cliche? That's such a good question. And I love questions like that too, because I know when I'm talking to a poet that a lot of the questions are uh, inspired or whatever by craft. Mm. You know, by that, because as artists, you're just always thinking like, how how can I do this? How can I do it better? How can I? How can I do this without making it sound cliche? So what, <laughs> what am I exactly? I mean, being fresh is like ninety percent of the of what effect, we're trying right? to do. Exactly. Um, so a couple observations. One was that um, some years ago, I published a book of poetry 
um, called Dear Beast Loveliness, Poems of the Body. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talked about in the introduction to that book was I read somewhere, maybe it's in Poets and Writers or somewhere like that, um, but the, the quote from a woman poet, and she said, I, her gender has nothing to do with it. I don't know right, how to say that. Right, but, that's okay. Uh, the poet said something like, um, oh, gosh, I remember that. Everybody back then was writing about the body, the body, body. That was all you heard. That was all you heard. And I remember thinking, the body comes in and out of style? <laughs> the body is a tr- our, our physicality is a, is a trend? Is oh, it? guess what? You have a physical body. It's trending on Twitter. Or whatever, you know. yeah, so I, I remember thinking that was dumb. Right? Uh-huh. But, I yeah. under, but I understand where that came from because obviously, the, look at the, it's, I call it the sunset problem. Right. Sunsets are unbelievable, but everybody paints them, writes them. They have to take photographs of them. Right. So to say, to do anything good with a sunset, you got to do something different. Yeah. And, and when you think of that, that's actually a paradox. Mm. If you're going to capture a sunset, there is a way to do it in a new way. There are new ways and people keep coming up with them. But you're, you don't want to get too far from the reality of the sunset because that's what's inspiring. You. So right. there's a sweet spot, I guess right. is what I'm saying. Right, right. So uh, when it comes to you know questions about desire... Um, I think what you do is you go back to one of the axioms of art, which is that the personal and the particular is probably the fastest route to the universal, mm. which is one of the strangest ideas to be true that I know of. You know, why, if I talk about the house I lived in when I was 10 years old on this street in this mm-hmm. city, why do other people read that? And I guess it's because particularity is also universal, I guess, okay. from, a, from a point of view. But the, uh, the other thing is, this is just this obvious thing to say, but... You need. We all need to write about things we really care about. Things yeah. We really feel. So yeah. you know, my stuff like yours, I know it comes directly from my experience. And if I don't feel it, I don't write about it. I mean, sometimes yes. I'll try. Yes. And I'll, the poem's usually flat, and I usually go. Right. But so I think that's what that's what happens. I also think there's one other factor here, though, too. Like the woman saying, "Oh, the body, the body." That's all we, everybody mm. talked about back then. Passe. Passe too strong a sense of what's passe i think dulls artists to more direct experience that can lead to better art Mm. in other words if you say to yourself i'm a painter i will never paint a sunset Mm. you have been skewed now Mm. it's, it's not your fault you've been skewed by the misuse of sunsets by millions of crappy painters mm. who do velvet paintings of sunsets, or mm-hmm. they do the, you know, that's the Thomas Kincaid sunset <laughs> that they had all the extra effects. I'm and thinking of all of the galleries in Carmel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but so you don't want to cut yourself off from the sunset. In fact, it might be that the greatest piece of work you ever do is a sunset. Is like a Van Gogh approach to a sunset, <laughs> but you'd have to do incredible work. For that to happen. So again, one of the things I try to do is not get too caught up in the, you know, that Hall of Mirrors thing you can get caught up in. Yeah. I'm writing this poem. Is this a cliche? Is this going to work? Maybe it's not going to. I'm just like, just, just write it. it. Then go back. Just write it. Well, I mean, and, and that, and that speaks to actually something else, um, which is, I I remember, I think I, I'm pretty sure it was Ben Lerner because he said a lot of memorable things when I was at University of Pittsburgh. But I think he said, you know, everything that you that you will write has already been written. So don't worry about That's like right. everything's let already been written. Just let it go. Yeah. And I remember thinking about that. And then I remember thinking about uh, sort of this concept of the multitudes. Was it Walt Whitman, the multitudes and the multiple people? All I'm speaking. I, I am the multitudes of people, something like that. But. Even if that sunset is important to everybody, that sunset is also unique to everybody. That's right. 
That's exactly right. So the there's another paradox. Right. Right. So that makes sense. Yeah, because <laughs> I think actually, I think that's one of those wonderful statements. There are so many philosophical, you could almost call it a philosophical koan right. applied to art. Right. Because art is a mysterious process. Right. So when you think of that, it's like uh, that sunset that is on the calendar tends to be, tends to feel more like a cliche because it just seems this is going to sound mean to somebody, but mm-hmm. I always had trouble remembering what Shania Twain looked like. <laughs> her face had such perfect dimensions that it had no personality to me. And, 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 and Shania Twain did great in life. I don't mean, yeah, I, I, have, I can imagine her face on one of the yeah. albums, and that's right. <laughs> but but, the, but this, that, that generic sunset just looks like the other ones. But, for example, if you are a painter and mm. you find a way, and, and Van Gogh is a great example because it was represent, right. representational work, and yet done in a way that and this again is what this is one of the things this may be my single favorite thing about art the most climactic moments the most ecstatic moments come to me in art whether i'm experiencing or creating when the art reveals something deeper to me Mm. that's just like it often happens to me with music Mm. sometimes even a fairly straightforward lyric Mm -hmm. uh the music some somehow seems to like just Open. open the floor and mm. we're looking down into something deeper. Or, yeah. 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 I find that in my muses and I, d- I definitely find uh, physical real people muses in my yeah. life and, yeah. and, and that happens. And I, I remember talking to one of my friends saying that one of, one of the complicated things about being someone like me who meets lots of people and organizes lots of people all the time is that a lot of people seem to be copies of themselves. So I'll meet people who are just copies. Oh, like you're talking about the Shania Twain thing. Yeah, yeah. That they're just copies. They just, but then there's one person who's not a photocopy of everybody else. And don't they just pop? They just exist in a way that no one else ever did yeah. or ever could. Yeah. And then, and then I was talking to um, a, a poet, uh, Jeremy Michael Vasquez out in San Francisco, who is an Afro Latino poet and really on fire right now doing lots of things in the community. Um, but we were saying how sometimes people feel like the walking dead, you're walking among them and you're just not, there's no energy, there's no life, there's no anything. And so even though all these people around us are experiencing the sunset or the love or the muse or whatever, they're all experiencing it, but they don't have the light inside themselves or something. Or, or it's been stuffed down or, or yeah, you know, I mean, there are a lot of forces in the world. That and we're very lucky to be where we are. I, I think so too. And in fact, I love the way you brought our conversation on this particular point full circle because clearly what that means, and I, <laughs> I hate it when, when artists talk about artists like pretending like they're not talking about themselves. Yeah, they we're, say we're always awesome talking about ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> we're so awesome. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but it is, it absolutely is. And again, if somebody calls us a cliche, mm. I'm like, I can't join you on that, even yeah, though it's yeah, been yeah. talked about a lot. There is this sacred duty that artists have to try to reveal to enliven to energize to you know and and a lot of people in this world love art who are not artists and have lives where they aren't as they all have it in them to be that but they're not as brilliant as they could be and art helps them do that and mm-hmm. it's not the only thing there are lots of other things that mm-hmm. can make people not copies of themselves that's yeah, yeah it's, great, yes. that's such a great <laughs> phrase i've never heard that before uh, but art is one of them so yes. I, what we do i think is actually and then again this sense i mean artists are humans everybody else we're yes we're stupid we're smart we, yes. we do bad things we do good things yes but what we do basically is a tremendous 
service to the human spirit. I think so. And in fact, to me, it's an absolutely spiritual role. I I can't see it in any other terms. I agree. I agree. And I, I, you know, I, it's only now, um, maybe in the last couple years since I had my daughter, um, that I've really sort of come into terms with myself as an artist in the world before I was always like, Oh, I'm a teacher. I'm a, I'm these other things, but I've really come to terms with being an artist and I've met lots of new people. And one of my friends said, Oh, you know, Rochelle, you're like a wildfire. People either want to get close to you and get burned or they just want to run away. Well, and that's perfect. isn't it? Because- <laughs> and now I see my, now I can see that now. Yeah. Now I know why people like me or they don't. It makes a lot of sense, too, because if you are, and again, this is something we talk about in my family a lot. There's a Saturday Night Live, live joke that I refer to all the time. They're doing Weekend Update. I think it's Tina Fey. God, I adore Tina Fey. And they pop up the Ford Taurus, and they say, you know, Ford companies announced that it's canceling the Ford Taurus. So now uh, an entire generation of 20-somethings have to find a new way to give up on their dreams, to, sh- to show that they've given up on their dreams. Now, you la- we laugh at that, but it's also got this really sad, sad resonance. sharp feel to it. Right, sad resonance. So that, to me, essentialized that kind of decision that everybody has to make. And the question, I guess the question kind of is, is how much, you've got this, wick inside you mm, litter on lit it's a fire. and the question is how much of the fire from existence are you going to let in there and letting the fire in is not always in the movies it's often portrayed as oh this is this wonderful character mm. she doesn't she goes up the down staircase she doesn't pay mm. attention to the rules she's lively <laughs> she's vital we all love her and i'm like in real life no it's not when you let you all don't the fire fit. in it it doesn't fit or it it's, it can be dangerous. Yes. You, you might break your routine. Yes. And, and that, that routine isn't always bad. No, but. And some people some people have the fire and they have too much of it and they yes. burn themselves out. Yes. So, again, what I'm bringing as an artist, sometimes people don't want to hear it. I mean, obviously, it could be because I'm not doing a good enough job, but sometimes I don't want to hear it because it's. Vitality is not a simple thing, it's like no. electricity. No, it's like taking electricity in yourself. You got to be able to handle the electricity. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you find and I have I have found working in institutions and working and I've learned about myself that I can't work with too many administrators down my back. I can't work with too many bosses watching me. I can't work with these things because I don't have the ability to be. <laughs> not myself in all of the roles I exist in in the world. And some people just like this friend who said I'm a wildfire also said the world is a dull gray place sometimes, Rochelle. And so sometimes your fire is too scary and people don't want to see it and they want to put it out. This is a really small example of that. But uh, I was teaching overseas one time and a guy who who actually I was a good friend with and a wonderful colleague. Uh, I came to school one day and he looked down at my pants and said, why aren't you wearing a belt? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't have a belt. He goes, well, you need, you should wear a belt. And I, I remember thinking about that afterwards. And I, I don't know why I was so slow to get it, but my God, if that wasn't the, the thin end of the conformist wedge, I don't know what is like, why do you care if I'm wearing a belt or not? You know, it's like, why do you want me to conform to this? Uh, and, and there are plenty of things about, I mean, in plenty of, I think people often overstate this, people on the left, mm. uh, there are plenty of things about conformism that I think are good. Mm-hmm. We teach our kids Absolutely. they shouldn't hit other kids. You shouldn't steal from mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do these things. I, I want people to conform to those things. Mm-hmm. But a level of conformity that, again, I, I mean, like, is the, and, and you want to say, is this really where you want to put your energy? Yeah. Is this really the kind of thing you want to mm-hmm. herd? Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's amazing how many people want to herd you. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so I've, I found, I, so, so the nice thing about learning, being a poet and coming to grips with being an artist and myself and, and being in the world and having people say things to me that make me recognize myself mm-hmm. is that now I can identify the pitfalls in my world a little better. And that's I think right. I'm getting better at being no, an artist exactly in the right. world. And, and it, that's a really good point too. And again, some young people I know who I know very well and work with closely who are artists, this can be a really difficult social challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, how do you fit in? And, I, and again, we have all those old metaphors for that that can become cliches. But if you are a round peg in a world of square holes, mm-hmm. it, it's not, you know, some people are easier at just going their own way. Mm-hmm. Like you, you think of somebody like Van Gogh who just seemed to be, or Kafka, you know, they just seemed to just like, go a thousand miles an yes. hour in that direction and never look back. And they probably had their moments. In fact, I know Kafka was vulnerable to situations mm-hmm. with his family and the rest of it. But other people, it's... Okay, so this is going to sound really self-serving to all of us as <laughs> That's artists all right, that's all right. <laughs> but it's a great line from Broadcast News. So Holly Hunter is playing this incredible journalist. Uh, she's a woman. She's small. It's like back in the 80s. She doesn't mm-hmm. get the respect she deserves. She's brilliant. Mm-hmm. She's smarter than her bosses. And at one point, she's telling the boss of the network, because she's on the news, mm-hmm. she's saying, well, we need to do this. We need to do this. And she's insisting. And he's like the head of NBC or <laughs> And he says to her, sarcastically, of course, he says, boy, it must be wonderful being the smartest person in the room all the time. <laughs> and she says, oh, no, it's horrible. <laughs> and she means it. She means it. And she's like this, you know, trying to negotiate <laughs> this. And, and again, obviously, she's talking about intelligence. Right. But being the wildfire yeah. in the gray world, that's not easy. No, it's you not. Know? And there are times when you're going to be. Yeah. Plus, another thing that drives me crazy about this is if you're a Okay, so there are plenty of there are a million wannabes and there are a million part time artists and right. good for all of them. I, right. I'm not. I don't think anybody has to put in a certain amount of time or no. commit to the whole career. Everybody gets to do what they want. I love. I love the idea of people. Like I see people at the songwriting competitions I go to. They play locally. They have a community. They're musicians. It's beautiful. Do what you want. But there are a relatively small group of people who are truly committed artists who've come to that understanding who are mm-hmm. giving their entire lives to it. Um, and most of us are just completely obscure. And, and I don't mind <laughs> yeah, that either. No, I, don't, me, yeah. I don't want come and somebody come handing me money. It's not yeah, that. yeah. But if you become a famous artist, you're a god. Yes. But if you're not a famous artist, then you don't register. I was. I. I, I don't want to name drop, but we were talking about this earlier. I was. Um, I work for the Philip Glass Days and Nights Festival, and I was working. So and awesome. I know. I know. <laughs> and I was driving Danny Elfman around. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And eventually, you know, you drive them enough around throughout the day enough, you got get to talking to him. And I, and I had this conversation with him about art and diligence. And I, I asked, he says, you know, everyone wants to be a, 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 a someone who scores music for films, but no one knows the amount of work it takes to get to where you where I am now and how my life doesn't stop and how now I have to go to the UK and record this Dr. Doolittle (laughs) soundtrack and and I'm like you get you're gonna go and do this amazing you're Danny Elfman what's going on here but it's that thing right it's that diligence in art if if we have it whether we become Danny Elfman or not it doesn't matter that's right it, sh- it shouldn't see, matter. See, I love how you do this, too. I, when we're having this conversation, it's amazing because it's, it's a little bit like basketball, like we're passing to each other. <laughs> and, you, and you keep taking that last pass and then boom, 
make it rain, right? Uh, it, it's almost the same thing, and I think it's really related because I think um, genuine artists are just automatically just obsessed with craft. So uh, this uh, writer is talking about how he was somewhere doing a book reading or whatever, and afterwards there's a Q&A, and, uh, and then after that, a young man comes up to him and says, well, do, do you think I could be a, a writer? And the successful writer says to him, I don't know, how do you feel about sentences? <laughs> uh, to me, this is one of the most brilliant possible answers because it's not only about, look, this is what it takes. It takes this dogged devotion to craft. Mm -hmm. But it's also a way to saying to somebody, this is the kind of work, this is the level of work ethic yes. you have to have if you're going to do this. Yes, It's like Ezra Pound saying that good form mm. in writing is simply an indication of somebody's sincerity. Mm. They, you know, they may not be great as artists, but if they're going to have good form, they can get that by just working their yes. asses off over and over and over. Yes. And over and over. So, so again, that's that's a very what you're saying is right. <laughs> and what I love about the way you tie that up, though, is that with all of this, and it's just like I was saying about the muse earlier. I look at my life sometimes, and I'm like, why can't you look at your life realistically and practically? Because I'm like hugging myself because it's so wonderful <laughs> and i mean i've got all these problems and pressures and stuff as an artist yeah, i'm too. always worried yes i always want more than i have and yeah. i haven't done with you know but i'm like oh my god what a way to live yeah it's it's such a gift yes yeah it's it such is such a gift and we are running out of time okay. and you've only read a couple poems read more poems <laughs> okay. so uh, i actually love to read this one um this one's about love in general because, again, probably, I mean, I, I'd say probably pretty clear that that's the thing we all want the most. Mm. My wife often says everybody just wants to be loved. Yeah. Uh, so it's called At the Mall. A boy with Down syndrome, looks about 14, is standing in the toy store hooting with delight at the mechanical parrot that repeats all he says in a squeaky parrot voice. Hello, hello, I love you. His father sees me watching, sends a piercing look, as if I've invaded the family's privacy, then turns quickly away, a flush of shame and sorrow in his eyes. He goes to the boy, grips his arm high near the shoulder, as if to redirect the errant body's power, mm. speaks in low tones. He is not chastising, merely reminding his overgrown child about our inside voices. Mm -hmm. The boy nods happily, whispers again to the bird, I love you. He is trying hard to obey, then suddenly cries out in grief when the bird malfunctions, flaps its gaudy wings but won't respond. Mm -hmm. His father again is there at his side, once more hurries to contain misbegotten passions, speaks in soothing tones, tries to distract the boy with other toys. He will have a lifetime of such moments. Mm. A few of the passers-by glance curiously at the two of them, politely turn to other things. We are all in agreement. The boy must learn, must be spoken to. The need for love, the joy of it, the grief mm. should never be so artlessly revealed. Mm. Mm. Read another. I would Maybe. be yeah, happy one more. to. Okay, let's see. That one's long. Um, uh, you can do a, you can do uh, a long there's, this one. Is, okay. This is okay. probably a good one. Okay. Um, I lost a sister to anorexia. I, I can't remember if I read this poem to you before. Mm. Um, this is one Dean particularly liked, and I liked is a weird word for it because it's obviously a huge <laughs> family tragedy. And mm. uh, But anorexia is so 
interesting again interesting i'm talking mm. about the death of my sister but it's our desire desire and anorexia are strange bedfellows right because desire for natural things like food gives way to other desires which are unhealthy and right anorexia my sister died when none of us were looking she'd grown thin as rake handle leaf thin cold as november wind an autumn world withdrawn into its narrowing self we were many and loud with desires, a big happy family, the envy of others. Played basketball in our parents' driveway, drank beer and talked long into the night, ate like farm animals. But she'd learned to hate food, to fear it. Slowly became a desperate, impoverished dictatorship sealing its own borders. She moved to Chicago, left teaching to become a flight attendant, loved us quietly from the distance her new appetite for suffering forced her to from jet aisles where she served food to strangers, looking properly slender in her uniform. We loved the sun, met for family dinners, began producing grandchildren, went camping out under the bright fertile stars. Forgive us. We didn't want to know how the planets were spinning out of their orbits, drifting, fragmenting, colliding there in her head. Thank you so much for being on the show. I always have uh, it's not just a really fun and pleasurable time on the show with you, Rochelle, but you always leave me with so much to think about, and I'm really grateful. Oh, for that. I'm grateful as well. I'm going to read before um, I play music out and let the next DJ come on. I'm going to read from the community calendar. So actually, next Friday night, February 21st at 6 p.m. on the east side of San Jose at Conexion, which is 749 Story Road, um, there will be a powerhouse of poets for a night of poetry for the community. Josiah Luis Alderete is coming from San Francisco, local Local poetic star Asha will be there. I'll be re reading from my first book um, there, which I'm adapting into a play. And then I'm also bringing in a poet from Brooklyn named Chris Carr, who is going to be there. So that's next Friday night at 6 p.m. If you have any questions, please call me here at the studio. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll be back next month with more poetry. Thank you so much, Tim, for being on the show. Tim J. Myers, uh, the author of The Fierce Complexities of Hunger. Thank you. Thank you, Rochelle.
Listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM on your radio dial, kkup.org, streaming worldwide. Hey, hello, San Jose. Hello, Watsonville. Hello, Santa Cruz, Capitola, Morgan Hill, Gilroy, many cities here in the Bay Area. Good to be with you this evening. This is Nightbird Susie here with you getting ready to play some jazz. And by the way, it's only a paper moon. It's only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Oh, it's only a canvas sky Hanging over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Without your love it's a honky-tonk parade Without your love It's a melody played in a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me 